7. And uh, when we start this, Acts chapter 7, we're going to go back up just a couple of verses into chapter 6. And we're going to see the charges that were laid against Stephen. We're going to see the charges that were laid against Stephen. Remember, who is Stephen? He was a deacon, right? Stephen was, was on fire for the Lord Jesus. He was on fire to serve. He was called out from among the people to be a deacon for the church in Jerusalem. Stephen is going and he is, he is going from place to place and sharing the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only serving the Hellenist, view, the Hellenist uh, widows, but he was going out and he was witnessing and giving the testimony of Jesus to those that he came in contact with. So he was busy about sharing the gospel, wasn't he? But listen to what happens here in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 13, 14, and 15. I want you to see what takes place. In 13 it says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. If you've got a pen, you'll want to write down the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the custom, customs that Moses delivered to us. So you want to write this down too. These were the charges that were going against him. Even though some of them were, were, were lying and they were paid to do this, the elders and the, and the scribes brought them and they were just like, you know, these, they, they paid false witnesses to speak against him. And he says, they never speak to, uh, he never, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. We've heard him speak that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So here in chapter 7 we begin. One of the most powerful sermons that's ever been preached in history. Right here, Stephen is about to deliver. What were the charges against Stephen that were brought before him? The first one, he speaks words against the holy place and against the law. Second, they said that he is telling everyone that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to them. Those are the charges. Stephen in chapter 7 is given the opportunity to respond to these charges. And respond, he does. It's more of a lengthy rebuke to them and to their fathers. Stephen here goes down memory, memory lane. And he's going to bring out things that are pretty awful. Does he do this because he was a good storyteller? Nope. Albeit, he knew the stories. The Spirit was on him, but he still knew the stories. He knew the Word of God. Stephen stands up to deliver what is one of the greatest messages of all time, and he... He does it in such a way that he goes down memory lane to show them their wickedness. 
Why does he give this lengthy historical response? What is he doing? What is his point? I'm going to give you five reasons why. And we're going to jump right into this because there's no sense in tearing. I'm going to give you five reasons why he's going to give this lengthy historical response. It wasn't because he was a good storyteller. It was not because he just wanted to share everything that he knew about God's word. No. He had a purpose for everything that he said. A purpose for everything he said. The first thing that I want you to see, and we're going to look at the first three today. The first thing that I want you to see... First was to display God's merciful, sovereign hand. To display God's merciful, sovereign hand. This is one reason why he's going to go down memory lane. All right, to go into history. The second reason, to remind them of the truth that they are no different from their fathers who were wicked and idolatrous. The third reason, to lead them all the way up to the truth that they murdered the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus. So we're going to go over those three right now. First, let's see God's merciful, sovereign hand, and you, and you truly see it all the way through this sermon. In each situation, you see God's mercy, you see God's grace, you see His sovereignty, His, His, His control and His power over the circumstances that's going on with these people in these stories. And I take a lot of comfort in that because if He is not sovereign, who is He? If our God is not sovereign, why are we here? If we don't fully believe that He is in control, why did you show up this morning? In every situation that we see, we see God's sovereign hand in this passage of Scripture. And it's going to be like that all the way through this sermon. But listen to what it says. Verses 2 through 8, let's read really quick. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So he starts with who? Abraham. He goes back further than Moses because he wanted to get to the very seed of what they all trusted in. And that was that they were the lineage of Moses or the lineage of Abraham and Isaac. And so here in this text, he goes back to Abraham and this is what he's going to do. He's going to show them God's sovereign hand, how merciful he was and how gracious he was to Abraham. Do y'all know what Abraham was? He was an idolater. He was an idolatry. He was in Mesopotamia. Then he moved to Haran. And from Haran, then God moved him into the promised land. But he was, an idol- he was an idolatry. Why did God choose him? <laughs> because he's sovereign. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. And he had a plan and a purpose for Abraham, did he not? 
And so he chose him out of a pagan nation to come out. And when he came out, then his plan and his purpose wasn't still even revealed to him yet. He said, go out and I'm going to take you to a place. that I'm going to show this place to you and you're going to go there. And then all these covenants and promises begin to come out. And we're going to look at that. Listen to what it says. And said to him, go out from your land in verse 3. And from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, the idolaters, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God, God removed him from there. You notice God removed him. God moved him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length. God didn't give him anything in the land of promise. The only thing that Abraham had in the land of promise was a bunch of his own stuff. And the only property that he did have was the property that he bought himself. God did not give it to him. He took it upon himself to buy it for his wife who had passed away. Abraham had no land in the land of promise. Nothing. Listen to what it says. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac. Verses 2 through 8 shows us the humble beginning for Abraham. It shows us that without God's merciful, gracious hand, Abraham would be nothing. Nothing. This is what it shows us. That he would still be in idolatry. It was God that called him. It was God that chose him. It was God that brought him out. It was God that removed him. And it was God that put him in the land of promise. It was all God's doing. Even though the life of Abraham was special to God by way of covenant and by way of promise, Abraham in time never received so much as a foot's length of land from the Lord. Never. He never received it from the Lord's hand. The scriptures teach us by faith, Abraham believed God and it was accredited or accounted to him for what? For righteousness. And this was the testimony that Abraham had, that he believed God. That he believed God. Turn with me to Hebrews in chapter 11. Listen to what it says there. Because I want you to see what, the, what Stephen is doing and what through the Holy Spirit is. He is taking the emphasis off of the promised land. He's taking the emphasis off of the temple. He's taking the emphasis off of the law. 
And he's saying that it is by faith in the promise that was to come, that already has come, that you murdered. Listen to what it says in in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham wasn't looking for a physical piece of property, but he was looking for a heavenly one, wasn't he? Listen to what it says, Hebrews 11 and 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire better country. Abraham desired a better country. Listen to what it says. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Turn back with me to the book of Acts. We have to understand that that Abraham was looking toward the heavenly city. He was looking toward the heavenly city. He was not looking towards that promised land that he could put his foot on. He was looking towards the heavenly city. And this stuck like a dagger right in their hearts. And I'll tell you the reason why it did is because they put all their emphasis on Abraham. They put all their emphasis on Isaac. They put all their emphasis on the temple. They put all their emphasis on the law and on Moses. And here Stephen comes and he says, no, 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 no. It wasn't about just the promised land. No, they were looking by faith to God for a city that was made not with hands. And he's going to carry this theme all the way through this sermon. He's going to carry it all the way through. So what is Stephen doing? He's showing them that their trust in the holy place is for naught. This is what Stephen is doing. He's also showing them that righteousness does not come from the law, that it does not come from Moses, but it comes rather by faith. As Abraham displayed before the law was even given. And so Stephen starts here with Abraham so that they they can see that before the law was given, before Moses came on the scene, that Abraham believed by faith. And here is God's merciful hand shown. Abraham did not deserve mercy, did he? What did he deserve for idolatry? He deserved death. He was an idolater. And if Abraham, and here's, here's the catch. Now you pay attention to me. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham eyed Isaac. You reckon that was passed on? Well, we know that it was passed on from Adam. So here's the thing. If Abraham was an idolater and they were putting all their faith in Moses and in that lineage, doesn't that make them one as well? Absolutely. And I'll tell you the reason why. Because they inherited it. They inherited it. If Abraham was the father of them all through Isaac, then they all deserve death as well. God was rich in mercy towards Abraham, pouring out his love 
pouring out his grace upon Abraham. Abraham received that by faith. Abraham was not justified in the law because there wasn't one yet. He was justified by faith. I want us to see that our first point when we look at this, that the story of Abraham, it shows God's merciful, gracious hand all over it. It's because it does. Abraham didn't deserve any of it. But God gave it to him. God gave it to him through covenant and through promise. The second thing that I want you to see is to remind them, this was this sermon and the reason why he goes down memory lane was to remind them that they were no different than their fathers who were wicked and idolatrous. Let me explain something to you real quick. So Stephen is not trying to impress them, okay? Did y'all, did y'all pick up on that yet? He is not trying to impress these people. What is he doing? He is trying to show them their wickedness. He is trying to show them where they have fallen short. He says, you charge me with this, let me tell you where you have fallen short at. This is what Stephen is doing. Stephen was preaching to them. Not a real popular message. As a matter of fact, it was so unpopular that the people were so enraged with him that they ground their teeth when they thought about it. Stephen was preaching something that was not fun to preach. This reminded them of their wickedness. We've already looked at some of this, but it it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. Stephen goes and he gets a lot deeper into this. You say, well, Abraham was an idolater. Yeah, he was. But as the family goes, we're going to see, as it branches out, we're going to see some of the same stuff, but just at a deeper level. Two examples are given to us in this sermon. Two examples are given to us in this sermon. One of which is Joseph... And the other one is Moses. Both are types of Christ. Both of them are types of Christ as mediator, as deliverer, as savior. Mediator, deliverer, redeemer, savior. Both of them are types of Christ. And both of them were rejected. And who were they rejected by? Not the pagan world. They were rejected by these men's fathers. So what's Stephen doing? Stephen is showing them, okay, (laughs) our father was an idolater that was saved by the grace of God. And after him, guess what? Your fathers were also, also wicked. Jesus Christ, or uh, I'm sorry, they were, they were both, both types of Christ and they were both rejected by their own people. Notice in verse 9, listen to what it says about Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. The heads of the tribes of Israel, primarily the ten sons, sold Joseph into Egypt. And then went back to Jacob and lied about it. Y'all remember the story? 
So what do we see about their fathers so far? We see that their fathers, the heads of these tribes, were wicked. Were wicked. They sold their own brother into slavery and then lied about it. They lied to Jacob and they held it as a secret until Joseph revealed it back to them. Joseph was set up by God's merciful, gracious hand to be a deliverer, to be a redeemer, a mediator, a savior for the people. And the heads of their fathers rejected him. The heads of their fathers rejected him as such. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. The second example that we see is Moses. And it's a fairly lengthy one, but, uh, but it, it's, it's there. Uh, the second one is Moses. Moses was called by God to deliver his people, to mediate on their behalf before God. And they rejected Moses just like they rejected Joseph. It's not looking too great for these people that Stephen is preaching to. He says, guess what, guys? Your lineage goes all the way back. And they rejected Joseph and they rejected Moses. Listen to what it says in 23 and following. When he was 40 years old, speaking of Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, by the way, that makes, Abraham, or that makes Moses 80. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses was going to be the deliverer, 35. This Moses whom they rejected. You see that? Stephen is saying, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him about Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Verse 39, listen to what it says. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to where? To Egypt. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days. What kind of calf was it, guys? A golden calf. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. Both were types of Christ. Both were set to redeem, to save, to deliver. And the people rejected them. Who were the people that rejected them? The fathers of the ones that Stephen was preaching to. Stephen is setting this in their heart and he is saying, your fathers have rejected these righteous figures in history. This is what Stephen is driving at. As he's going down memory lane, he is saying, your fathers, they were wicked and they were heinously idolatrous. They rejected those who were sent to them to deliver them. Pay attention, guys. And then he's saying this, and you are no different. What's Stephen doing? He's laying the charge to them. He says, your fathers did this. They rejected it. They rejected Moses. They rejected the prophets. They rejected Joseph. They were wicked. They were heinous. They were idolaters. Your fathers were. And he's saying, you are no different. Why are they no different? Because they rejected the very Savior that came to redeem them in the first place. This is not a popular message. Not a popular, at all, popular message at all. Third and finally, let me, let, me, let me share with you what happened. Stephen leads them up to their idolatry and to their heinous crime, which was just like their fathers. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They have rejected the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And having rejected him, they murdered him on a cross. All the examples that Stephen gives is fact. And at these facts that were laid against them, the people were absolutely enraged. They were enraged. Nobody likes to hear that they are wrong, do they? Nobody likes to hear it. Nobody likes to hear it. But this is exactly what has left the pulpit in these latter days. 
What's fixing to happen? Listen. Third and finally, he leads them to the fact that they're idolaters, that they're heinous, just like their fathers who rejected Joseph and who rejected Moses. They've rejected Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And having rejected them, they murdered him on a cross. All these examples, all of them, that Stephen gives, show them that their fathers were wicked and there's no difference between their fathers and them. Telling them that they need a Savior. This is what Stephen is doing. What was the people's response? <laughs> they were so mad they began to grind and grit their teeth together. You ever seen somebody so mad that they, they grit their teeth together? Come on. Casey grinds her teeth at night. I don't know if that's from, from the struggles during the day with me. <laughs> but she grinds her teeth at night. People that grit their teeth because they're so mad and they're so angry, they're enraged with hate. They're enraged with absolute, obstinate, defiant, wicked rage. And they were pointing all of this rage at Stephen. And before we even go to the stoning of Stephen and and the things that Stephen said to them, my question today, we've went over those three things. My question today, we saw God's sovereign hand. What else did we see? Sovereign hand. What else? That they're no different than their father's. And then here, finally, Stephen leads them all the way up to the point of telling them, you are just like them and you have crucified the very one that came to deliver you. The very one that the prophet spoke about. The very one that came to fulfill the law that you're talking about. The very one that Joseph looked like and the very one that Moses pointed to. You have murdered him and hung him on a cross. You've slaughtered him and you're guilty. You're guilty. My question today is, do we fall into this category, obstinate defiance? Of obstinate defiance. As the people respond to Stephen's sermon with rage, today when the gospel is preached, people do one of two things. They respond with rage or they submit to it, don't they? One of two things. Rage, and that rage may take on a lot of different shapes, colors, and forms. But they're either obstinate to it, or they humbly confess that they are guilty. My question is, do we humbly confess that we did take part in Christ's death? If Stephen was here this morning, he was preaching to you, and he was telling you, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. That we are all guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross. Would you be mad at him? Or would you say, yes, I'm guilty. Can we own it that we are sinners or are we just trusting in other things for our justification like they were doing? They were trusting in the fact that they had a, had a, had a building and that they had a law. And that they had a man named Moses. 
They were trusting in lineage. They were trusting in works. Can we own it? Or can we, are we going to be like them? Can we say that we're like Abraham? Can we confess that we're like Abraham, idolatrous, without God's mighty grace and mercy? See, even these men that, that were so awesome in the Old Testament that Stephen is bringing up, even these men deserved death and deserved hell because of wickedness. Abraham deserved it. Can we confess that we, that we are like the sons of Jacob? Jealous and coveting after someone else? Are we able to confess that before the Lord? See, we have to be able to confess. We have to be able to say, yes, that was me. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I'm an idolater. Yes, I'm a coveting, jealous, wicked person. Can we confess that? Can we say that we share in the same problems of Moses? We forget that he was a murderer. You say, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, we know better than that. The Scripture teaches us clearly that if you've had that anger and that hatred in your heart to somebody, it's just the same. And that you're guilty. Can you confess that? See, we're not that much different than Moses and Abraham and Jacob and the, and the ten sons that went against even Joseph. We're not a lot different than them. What about... Can you confess that you're like the children of Israel, murmuring, always complaining, always getting themselves in trouble with their tongue, always going and whoring after other gods? Can we confess that? See, there is sin that is in our life that we have to be able to confess. Can we say that without God's merciful, gracious, sovereign hand on our lives that we are headed for hell because of our very own sin? Can we confess that? That without God's sovereign grace on our life, without His mercy in our life, can we confess that we would be headed straight for hell because our sin would be putting us there? Can we confess it? These are hard questions that we have to ask. See, until we can confess our guiltiness, until we can confess that, we cannot share in the full pardon that Christ gives. Do we understand that? Until we can confess that we are absolutely guilty, just like Stephen is showing to them. Until we can say, yes, Lord, we are guilty. Yes, Lord, I have committed that sin and I am guilty of it. I deserve hell. Until we can confess that, we cannot share 
in eternal life that's given to us fully and freely at the cross. You must confess your sin. You must. From the beginning, before the law was given, after sin entered the world, from the beginning, it was written on their hearts to repent and to confess. After the law was given, the prophets, the priests, the judges told the people to repent, to confess. All the way up to the New Testament, John the Baptist comes in onto the scene and with the message to repent and confess. Jesus told them to repent and confess. The disciples told them to repent and confess. The apostles who ordained the deacons, the deacons now here, we have the head one, which is Stephen, and he is preaching to them. And he is showing them that they are guilty. Leading them to repentance and confession. Which we know that they don't. From the beginning to now. Ministers and children of God have been preaching repentance and confession for the saving of the soul. And until you can repent and confess, you can't share in the full and free pardon that's offered to us from Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that we are sinners. We have to understand that we are completely guilty for nailing our Savior to the cross. It was our sin that put Him there. When you can take stock in that, then you can take stock in eternal life with Jesus. For the remission and forgiveness of sins, I leave you with this. One must repent and confess that he is guilty. Believing by faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I leave you with this. Repent. Confess your sins. Believe in Christ Jesus. If you look in Acts in chapter 7, the people didn't do that. They rejected Him. They rejected the message of Stephen, just like their fathers rejected the message of Moses, the message of Joseph, all the way back to Abraham. I stand before you today. And I implore you to repent and confess. Trusting in Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of sins. And the Scripture teaches us clearly that those that do will be saved.
Not if they'll be saved or when they'll be saved. They will be saved when they repent and confess that Jesus is Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we've heard a message of